The title of this message is Communion Clarity in Place of Communion Confusion, or Communion Clarity versus Communion Confusion. There is much confusion around communion. There is much debate around the Lord's Supper, and there has been for generations. There has been for, not decades, but centuries. There is this very day, communion confusion taking place all around the globe. There is this very day, many gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, celebrating what they call communion, and it is not. There is this very day, a gathering of well over a billion precious souls who are blaspheming Christ in what they call communion. Who are blaspheming Christ's gospel in what they call communion. There are men and women who are in Christ's true church who will celebrate true communion today, biblically speaking, who one day will go apostate. They will leave Christ's church and join the enemy of Christ's church and celebrate an anti-Christ communion. That is a tragedy. My desire and the goal of this message on this Lord's Day that we will be celebrating communion is to give communion clarity in place of communion confusion, to build a solid foundation of communion clarity that will protect you from not just confusion, but outright apostasy and heresy. And don't think that you or your children are immune. If you are not clear, if you have no definite conviction, if you lack a dogmatic position on communion, then you are in danger. There are a billion souls on the broad path to destruction, over a billion, in their mishandling of communion. So this is a vital topic, an important topic, and my desire is one to protect you and two, to equip you to celebrate biblical communion properly with joy and gladness. And so our text for this message is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, the text for this message. I will read it. Then we'll go away from it for a while and deal with the debate, if you will, the confusion, the heresy, the error, and then we'll come back to the truth. We'll come back to the text and we'll unpack it properly. But let's read it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it, that there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. As I said, we will read the text and unpack it later. This is the clearest text in all of God's Word regarding the ongoing celebration of the Lord's Supper. An excellent article succinctly explains the historic and theological differences between the predominant views on communion or the Lord's Supper. And there are many views, but there's three predominant views. The Lord's Supper is referred to by numerous phrases, the Lord's Table, Communion, Meal, Eucharist, Mass, the body and blood of Christ, love feast or agape feast, breaking of bread, and divine liturgy. Most of those 10 references I just listed should be jettisoned from your vocabulary because they're not just simply missing from Scripture. They are antithetical to Scripture. They are at odds with Scripture. They are even anti-Christ. There are essentially three views of the Lord's Supper, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and memorialism. Raise your hand if you'd like to give everyone a definition of those three positions. There might be a few of you that are able, but we should all be able to. This debate matters. This is a debate over heaven and hell. This is a debate over the true gospel and the false gospel. This is a debate that matters. We need to know these positions, one, so we don't get deceived and drawn away into heresy. What's the difference between error and heresy? Let me make that point. Error damages. Error harms. Error is dangerous. Heresy damns. Heresy takes you to hell. Error, theologically speaking, is not good. Heresy, theologically speaking, is terrifying. Transubstantiation is heresy. It's terrifying. This author continues, Transubstantiation, this is the view of the Roman Catholic Church. During the ceremony called the Mass in Rome, not in Christ Church. During the ceremony called the Mass, Catholics believe the elements of bread and wine of the Lord's table are changed in substance into the, hear me, literal flesh and blood of Christ. Even though the elements appear to remain the same, This is also referred to as the real presence of Christ, quote, unquote. They call it the real presence of Christ. And they 
have a whole science behind it, how it may look like bread, it may look like wine, but it is actually, truly, no question, the body and blood of Jesus. Transubstantiation is mistaught using John 6.24, which says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. They add to this phrase, this is my body, this is my blood. They assert that all these phrases are to be interpreted literally and not metaphorically. However, this is incorrect for a number of reasons. Number one, Moses wrote in Genesis 9, verses 4 through 6, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Therefore, Jesus would have violated his own word. For the word of Moses is the word of God, is the word of Jesus. Secondly, in Matthew 26, 29, after the institution of the meal, Jesus still considered the fruit of the vine to be the fruit of the vine and not his literal blood. And so he didn't say, now be careful, that's holy, that's my blood. No, he treated it as if it was wine, which indeed it was. Third, at the institution of the meal, Jesus was not yet dead. Therefore, if the words are taken literally, this would have been a form of cannibalism. It would be cannibalism each and every time the meal is partaken of by Catholics. And you understand that. The Mass is cannibalism. There's no escaping that. If it is actually Jesus' flesh and actually Jesus' blood, then it's actually cannibalism. Which is why, by the way, as they celebrated that heresy, and even as the true church celebrate, some outside of the faith historically have thought that we are cannibals. That's a true fact of history. Fourth, the Catholic Church takes the words to literally... After all, Jesus is not literally light, John 8, 12, a door, John 10, 9, a vine, John 15, 5, or a lamb, John 1, 29. And we could add water and many other things. If he was then, how could he also be wine and bread? If he was all those things, how could he also be literally wine and bread all at the same time? The one true God is not a pantheist. God is not these things. And by the way, where is Jesus currently? Seated at the right hand of the Father. And no priest calls him out of heaven at will and feeds him to the flock. Fifth, Catholic Mass crucifies Jesus over and over again. However, the Bible states that Jesus gave himself once as a sacrifice. Then he ascended and he sat down at the right hand of the Father until he returns to make his enemies his footstool. Sixth, if the word cup is used by Jesus figuratively of the wine, then why would we interpret the wine and bread in the same manner in a different sense? Seventh, Jesus had used the word bread metaphorically before in Matthew 16, 8 through 12. Metaphorically, not literally, clearly. So there's a precedence. And eighth, Catholics agree that the Lord's Supper replaces Passover. Exodus 12, 11 through 14 speaks of the lamb that was slain and eaten in the feast. Moses said, it is the Lord's Passover, Exodus 12, 11. But was this literal? No, the literal Passover was God's act of passing over the firstborn of the Israelites and not slaying them when he slew the firstborn of the Egyptians. The eating of the lamb was an annual feast to do what? To remember the actual Passover. 
and not to reenact God's act of passing over the firstborn. Every year as they celebrated Passover, that blood over their doorpost did not save them. The actual Passover was historic, and their faith in the Lamb who is to come, Jesus Christ, was what saved them. That's transubstantiation in a nutshell, and our rejection of it will get to it a little further later, but I want to touch on consubstantiation. This is generally accepted as the Lutheran belief in the Lord's Supper. So when the Reformation took place, they went back to the Word of God to see if these doctrines of Rome were true, not just transubstantiation, but many doctrines. They went back to the Word of God to search the Scriptures to see if this is true. And one of the principles of the Reformation is sola scriptura. If it doesn't come from Scripture alone, if it comes from a pope or from bishops or a council of Rome or any other person or council, but it's contrary to the word of God, let the word of God be true and every man a liar. God's word is the authority in all matters of theology, not councils of men or individual men. Thus, they go back to the scripture, Martin Luther leading the way there in the Reformation, and this is generally accepted as the Lutheran belief in the Lord's Supper, consubstantiation. Though all Lutherans are not pleased with the phraseology, The reader will note the use of con instead of Catholic trans. Trans means change. So transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine change into the body and the blood of Jesus. And con means with. The blood is with or coexists with the wine. And so the body coexists with the bread, the blood coexists with the wine. And depending on which Lutheran or teacher of, or other teacher of consubstantiation you read or hear, they explain it in various ways that frankly are a bit difficult to understand because it's not a clear biblical truth. So Lutherans argue that the bread remains the real bread and the wine the real wine, but the physical presence of Christ is there also, in, with, and under, in, with, and under. Other than semantic language differences, it is difficult to see any other real difference between this view and Catholicism's transubstantiation. This view is incorrect for many of the same reasons as transubstantiation. Memorialism, the actual biblical position, memorialism. This view is attributed to Ulrich Zwingli historically, a reformer, It maintains that there is no real presence of Christ at the Lord's table, but the meal is only a memorial of the atonement purchased by Christ. They assert that the bread and wine remain as bread and wine at the meal. And indeed, they do. They do. As we've already read, and we'll cover it again at length, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Twice over in 1 Corinthians 11, once for the bread, once for the cup. The clarity of Scripture is beyond question. Do this in remembrance of me. That is the biblical position, and we can and should have clear conviction to that end and even dogmatism and unbudging conviction. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, if you haven't heard of Charles Spurgeon, dear saints, you need to study church history. Get online, look up Charles Spurgeon, read some Charles Spurgeon's sermons. 
an incredibly gifted servant of God. If there is a hero today, a preaching hero who is succinctly, clearly, and powerfully and faithfully preaching God's word on the planet, whoever you might think of is the most influential, solid, spirit-filled, true preacher of God's word today. Spurgeon was that man of his day. And his sermons have had legs. They have come down through the generations to bless and to bless and to bless and to bless again and again and again. So Charles Spurgeon labored to light a Reformation fire in his day because he loved his Roman Catholic neighbors and wanted them to be saved. So he spoke with conviction. He spoke with clarity. He spoke with dogmatism regarding the many heresies of Rome. And hear me, transubstantiation and the Mass are the chief heresy of Rome. It is the chief heresy of Rome celebrated every single day around the entire globe. As they call Christ from heaven into the wafer, call Christ from heaven into the cup, and serve Christ up to be eaten and drank for justification. It's another Christ. In other words, it is an idol, and it's another gospel. And there is no other gospel. It is antichrist. Charles Spurgeon says this, False gods attempts to represent the true God, and indeed all material things which are worshipped are so much filth upon the face of the earth, whether they be crosses, crucifixes, virgins, wafers, relics, or even the Pope himself. You must understand that Rome worships the wafer. Rome bows before the wafer. Rome comes into the building. Roman Catholics, faithful Roman Catholics, our dear perishing neighbors, they come into the Catholic building. I I can't even call it a church, biblically. They come in and they recognize the presence and the holiness of that wafer that they believe to be Jesus Christ that's in the front of the church in a box. The wafer is prayed to. The wafer is worshipped. You see the Pope at high Catholic events lifting the wafer, giant Pope wafer, on a stick so that everyone can bow before it and adore it. You see pictures, famous pictures, of every pope with, literally, they believe, Jesus on a stick, giant pope wafers, and they just stand there staring at it, adoring, adoring, that's their term, worshiping, adoring, honoring the wafer. We were ministering the gospel some months ago down in Portland, and we were on the way home, my wife and I, and I think Keenan, and we saw, in the middle of this China virus epidemic, we saw Rome trying to drive demonic forces from Portland. They marched through Portland with a a mobile tent on poles, and the priest, probably a bishop, was in the center in all his priestly garb and his priest hat, and he had a great stick with a great wafer on it. And of course, he's worshiping Christ and expelling demonic forces throughout Portland, walking through, they marched through Portland with a great entourage of Catholics in tow. It was quite the scene. Did it work? Well, I've been to Portland since, and it did not. Jesus did not say, go march through cities with a giant wafer. Jesus said, go and preach the word. Go and preach the gospel to every creature. Go and preach repentance. Call men everywhere to bend their knee and confess Christ as Lord. 
And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So false gods attempts to represent the true God, and indeed all material things which are worshipped are so much filth upon the face of the earth, whether they be crosses, crucifixes, virgins, wafers, relics, or even the Pope himself. We are by far too mealy-mouthed about these infamous abominations. God abhors them, and so should we. To renounce the glory of spiritual worship for outward pomp and show is the height of folly and deserves to be treated as such. He goes on. Popery is contrary to Christ's gospel and is the Antichrist, and we ought to pray against it. It should be the daily prayer of every believer that Antichrist might be hurled like a millstone into the flood and for Christ, because it wounds Christ, because it robs Christ of his glory, because it puts sacramental efficacy in the place of his atonement and lifts a piece of bread into the place of the Savior and a few drops of water into the place of the Holy Ghost and puts a mere fallible man like ourselves as the vicar of Christ on earth. If we pray against it because it is against him, we shall love the persons though we hate their errors. We shall love their souls though we loathe and detest their dogmas. And so the breath of our prayers will be sweetened because we turn our faces towards Christ when we pray. Let me unpack a little bit of what he said there. They make a a wafer, a bit of bread, They lift a piece of bread into the place of the Savior. It's an idol. They lift up to be worshipped and to have faith placed in, and then with faith, eaten for justification. And a few drops of water in the place of the Holy Ghost. You understand, when Rome drips water, H2O, it's not holy, water. If anything, it's unholy. Because an Antichrist priest prayed over it. When Rome drips water on a baby... They declare the baby to be regenerated, born again from above, a new creature, and now a member of Christ's universal church, saved, sin washed away. That's called baptismal regeneration, and it is in the realm of not error, but heresy. Rome is heresy upon heresy upon heresy. That's not baptism, by the way. What does the word mean in Greek, baptismo? Immerse or dip, yes, And you are immersed in Christ. I don't want to be sprinkled with Christ. I want to be immersed in Christ. And by the way, in the Bible, it's believer's baptism, not pedo-baptism. It's believer's baptism. Pedo is child. This infant has no faith. This infant has not repented. This infant has not confessed Christ as Lord. But mom and dad come and hand the infant to the priest, and the priest puts some H2O on it and pronounces the baby born again from above. A member of Christ's universal church. What did... Stephen say to the eunuch, who said, the eunuch said, see, here's some water. It keeps me from being baptized. Stephen said to the Ethiopian eunuch, nothing if you believe with your whole heart. Thus, believers' baptism. Rome puts a wafer in a cup in place of Jesus and his cross, his shed blood, his tetelestai. It is finished, his last pronouncement from the cross. Rome puts the mass in place of Jesus and his gospel. Rome puts a few drops of water in the place of the Holy Ghost, regenerating and puts a mere fallible man like ourselves as the vicar of Christ on earth. And not just the vicar, not just Pope Francis, who doesn't even believe his Roman Catholic heresy. He believes every heresy. He's a heretic of heretics. He's an astounding heretic. Shocking. But not just Pope Francis. Every priest, every priest thinks he has the right to absolve sin. He has men and women come, confess their sins to him, and he absolves them. 
with a bit of hocus pocus in a box. Or tells them to say a few Hail Marys in our fathers, which again involves idolatry, even as we saw on the streets yesterday. We were ministering the word of God for the salvation of souls and the rescuing of the unborn at the abortion clinic yesterday. And the Lord was so gracious as to gather about 10 or 12 Roman Catholics who came with their rosary beads in hand, who came to worship Mary. The songs they sang were all worship to Mary. And their, their signs had Mary, they had Mary on a stick. They had Mary up on a stick. And they're, they're bringing Mary against abortion as if Mary is omnipotent. God alone is omnipotent. God alone saves sinners, and God alone turns sinners back from the premeditated murder of the unborn. Yet they bring Mary on a stick to oppose abortion. And then they sing her praises, and then they pray to her with their rosary. It was a wonderful opportunity to preach the one true God and the one true gospel to them and call them to repentance and faith. I love our Roman Catholic friends, and they know it. They know it. And every time they come, I either talk to them, or if they gather like a nice congregation, I'll preach to them. That's easier than talking one at a time. Because I love them, but I hate the doctrines that are damning them because they're heresies. And so we must be clear, dear saints. We must be clear. Roman Catholicism's catechism, the authoritative doctrinal statement, which again is heresy upon heresy, declares in paragraph 1323, it says this, At the last supper on the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. This he did in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross through the ages until he should come again. And so to entrust to his beloved spouse, the church, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is consumed, quote, unquote. Christ is consumed. Cannibalism. Paragraph 1324. The Eucharist is the source and summit of Christian life. It's the chief heresy of Rome. It's the source and summit. You come and eat Christ and you are justified. Paragraph 1357. Bread and wine, which is by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the words of Christ, have become the body and blood of Christ. Christ is thus really and mysteriously made present. Paragraph 1367, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of the priest who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of the offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. Paragraph 1405, every time this mystery is celebrated, the work of our redemption is carried on. The work of our redemption is carried on? The work of our redemption is finished! To tell us die! One of our dear sisters told me yesterday, she ordered a t-shirt, or she's recently gotten it. It says, to tell us die. And I said, oh, that's brilliant. That's great. You know why? Because people won't know what it means, and they'll say, what is that? To tell us die. And you can say, oh, it's a quote of Jesus on the cross, and it means... It is finished. It goes right to the gospel. That's a brilliant t-shirt. To tell us that. It is finished. Rome's mass blasphemes Christ's final word on the cross. It is antichrist. What does the word of God say? The word of God says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. 
when he, Jesus, had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He himself purged. Purged is what sense? Past sense. Purged. Historically, it happened. Then what? He ascended. He sat down. Why do you sit down? You're done. It's finished. And that's where he is seated even now. That was Hebrews 1 verse 3. Hebrews 7 26. For such a high priest, such a high priest. I don't want any earthly priest. Hear me. Hear me. There are no earthly priests. They're only deceivers and liars. There are no earthly priests. Pastors are not priests. Pastors say, follow me as I follow Christ. And they shepherd their, their rod and their staff is the word of God. And if how they're shepherding is not in the word of God, then they're not under shepherds, as the Bible rightly calls a true under shepherd or a true pastor. Pastors say, let's follow Christ together according to the word of God. Priests say, let's sacrifice Christ and eat him. You get the difference? Shepherds have a pulpit. A pulpit where what? The word of God is preached. Because this is the rod and the staff of a shepherd to follow the true shepherd, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. Priests have an altar with Christ's body and blood on it so they can feed him to the people to eat and drink justification. There are no priests because Christ was the final high priest. Hebrews 7.26, For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy and harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, hear this, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. Why does Jesus not need to offer daily sacrifices as the final high priest? Because he offered up himself once. And he is the sacrifice that all the other sacrifices were pointing to. He's the final high priest and the final sacrifice. It is finished. Hebrews 9 verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Again, I ask you, what tense is that? Having obtained. Past tense. Having obtained eternal redemption. When the Bible says Jesus obtained eternal redemption, who are you? Who is the local priest? Who is the Pope in Rome to argue against it and say, no, 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 no. We're still obtaining it. Day by day by day, when we call him out of heaven and re-crucify him again in a non-bloody manner and serve him up as a meal. Having obtained, it says, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Don't forget that. This is not hard theological math. Having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal. What's the quality of the redemption Christ gave you? The quality is eternal. Having obtained eternal redemption. What's the quality you can get just up the road? Right on Walker, right up the road. What's the quality of the redemption you can get there at Mass today? Temporal. Temporary. You better come back tomorrow because you might sin. So you keep coming back. You keep coming back. You keep coming back to get that justification, to get that redemption, to get that cleansing of sin, lest you perish in your sins. It's sacramental salvation versus to telestai. It is finished. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ and his finished work alone. Hebrews 9, 22. And according to the law, all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. 
So while they claim to call Christ out of heaven to be re-crucified so they can serve him up at Mass, they differentiate. If you remember, we were reading the Catechism, it says in a non-bloody manner, in a non-bloody manner. And yet the Word of God says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because the wage of sin is death. You know that verse. But we don't often do the math. or don't always do the math. The wage of sin is death. Uh, Leviticus 17 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The wage of sin is death. The life of the flesh is in the blood. That's why Jesus' blood had to be shed. That's why we have a bloody faith. But hear me, it was shed once for all. And he obtained eternal redemption. And he ascended on high. Hebrews 9 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Bible says Jesus put away sin once by the sacrifice of himself. How dare any man put on a funky collar and call himself a priest and say, no, he did not. I don't want your collar. I don't want your lies. I don't want your wafer. I don't want your cup. I don't want your Jesus on a stick. I don't want your funny hats and funny robes. I don't want anything of the Antichrist. It's all pomp and ceremony, but it's nothing of Christ. And it's not just nothing of Christ, it's the enemy of Christ. It's not just a confused communion, it's a damning and heretical communion. Hebrews 9, again, verse 26, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the age, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once, in case we didn't hear it the first time, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Hebrews 10, verse 11 And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Hear me, if Israel's high priest could never take away sins, if those were all just types pointing ahead to Jesus, do you think these fake priests, Rome's fake priests, can take away sins? No, they cannot. Israel's were at least sanctioned by the word of God. But they didn't have the power to take away sin. They were a type of Christ, the final high priest, and the final sacrifice who would come. This thing that Rome does is not found in or commanded by God in Scripture. It is only less able to take away sin. In fact, it doesn't just not take away sin. It is sin. It adds to your sin. Again, Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Christ, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. After he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. By one offering, he has perfected forever. What tense? Perfected. 
historic past tense. By one offering, he has perfected forever. Again, the quality of this perfection, the quality of this redemption. What's the quality of it? It is forever. It is eternal. It is without end. You don't have to keep coming back day by day lest you perish. And that's the glory. That's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the glory of what we actually celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Is that by grace alone, through faith alone, not by daily trying really hard, not by daily doing religious works, not by, okay, I didn't pray today. I, oh, I, you know, if I died right now, I don't know. Uh, well, I, I missed church this week. You know, I, I wasn't feeling quite, but I probably could have gone, oh no, I, I better be careful. Look both ways before I cross the street. No, it's not our works. It's Christ's work. And it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It's not the works of our hands. It's his pierced hands. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We're being sanctified. We're being sanctified. You're not done yet. God's not done with you. That's good news, right? That's good news. You're sitting next to some people you hope God's not done with, right? You're looking at someone you really hope God's not done with. (laughs) That's good news. We're being sanctified, but we are justified. Do you get the difference? We are justified. We are saved. Ask a Catholic if they're saved, if they're going to go to heaven. You know what they'll say 99.9999% of the time? I hope so. Why? And why do you say I am saved? Because you know the gospel, they don't. You trust in Christ's finished work by grace alone, through faith alone, to save you. They're trusting in their sacramental works, the works of their hands, to save them. Thus, they're not really sure. They're not really sure. And Rome doesn't want them sure. You know why? Because it keeps them coming back. Coming back. Keeps them subservient. When the Reformation was taking place and people were kind of, I don't know, you know, is this the gospel or is... Is sacramental stuff the gospel? Is it Rome? Are these reformers? I don't know. Rome shut up the church to punish them because they, they still had enough faith in the transubstantiated Christ and in the wafer to fear hell if they couldn't eat Christ daily. They had a grip on society. They had a grip on their hearts. And they feared that they'd go to hell if they could not get into that church and get that wafer from the hand of the priest. And so they punished them. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. John 19.30, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. His final word to Telestite, words in English, It is finished. Bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Romans 6.9-11, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Dies no more. Rome says, No, 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 why do I... Why, no, he dies daily. We re-crucify him daily. What are you talking about? He dies no more. Do you see how they're at odds? They go head to head with the Bible over and over and over again. Let God's word be true. And every man that opposes it, a liar. They are the liar. Anyone who opposes God's word, they're the liar. Romans 6, 9, once again, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon yourself to be alive already, would you? You're dead to sin, you're alive in Christ. Don't keep going back for an unholy snack to keep you alive. Oh, i got to get a Jesus wafer to keep me alive. 
No, you're alive in Christ because he's alive. He rose again and he dies no more. And you've come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, and you have been risen from the dead and you'll die no more. That's our faith. That's our hope. That's the gospel. And that's why communion confusion is incredibly dangerous. Revelation 1, 17. And when I saw him, I felt his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. I'm alive forevermore. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive. Behold, behold. Cry out to all of Rome. Behold, he is alive forevermore. He will not be re-crucified. He will not be put to death again. He is alive forevermore. Amen, it says. I'm alive forevermore. Amen. (laughs) And I have the keys of Hades and death. He who lives and died and rose again and is alive forevermore, he has the keys of Hades and death. Not the Pope of Rome, not his army of priests. Jesus alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone alone, to the glory of God alone. Those are the pillars of the Reformation. Those are the pillars of our faith born out of Holy Scripture. Well, I could say so much more on that topic, but we'll leave transubstantiation. We'll leave the heresy of transubstantiation. And what will I say about consubstantiation? I'll say this. It's too close to transubstantiation. It's too close to heresy to be comfortable with. That's what I'll say. Are there believers Genuinely born again, men and women that I love, that hold to consubstantiation? Yes. But it is error, and it's dangerous error, and it tends toward far too many people who hold to consubstantiation today will step across and hold to transubstantiation tomorrow. It's too close. And while there are reformer champions who lived and died, who are heroes of the faith, who went from transubstantiation, heresy, to consubstantiation, error, and died in that error. Well, that doesn't damn their soul, but it doesn't mean we keep following them in that error. There's another pillar of the Reformation, another principle of the Reformation called semper reformanda. I mentioned it earlier. Always reforming. Always reforming. The early reformers were steeped in heresy. They were steeped in the false doctrines of Rome. And by the grace of God, they went back to the scriptures and they began to apply them to those heresies and say, wait, 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 stop. That's heresy. We don't want any part of that. And then they would go to the truth or at least toward the truth. And it took, I don't know, 50, 100 years for them to get out of Rome and establish a good solid body of truth. And yet in generations to follow, they continued to jettison some of Rome's dogmas, some of Rome's errors, or to get further from the heresy and into the scripture, into the biblical theology that the Holy Spirit inspired and preserved in holy scripture. And so our consubstantiation friends, I would encourage them out of love, not because they're going to be damned, but even in consubstantiation, but I would encourage them out of love to continue to be reformed, semper reformanda, to Go to the scriptures and to embrace the biblical position of memorial or memorialism. Do this in remembrance of me. Christ is not in, above, and under, and beneath the wafer and the cup. Get this. This is, this is good news. If you really, really, really wanted consubstantiation to be true, and you really, really, really like consubstantiation, and it's hard for you to give up Christ being in, and above, and around, and under, and 
the bread and the cup, let me tell you, we've got even better biblical news, actual biblical news, that Jesus said himself. These are his final words. His final word on the cross to tell us die. His final words before ascending, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. He is here now. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. We don't need him in the wafer. We don't need him in the cup. He's here right now. And so let us hold to the biblical reality and not get some infatuation with, with, he must be present in the bread and the cup. No, do this in remembrance of me. And he's present everywhere we are. And he's certainly present when two or three are gathered in his name. That's scripture. Hold to scripture. Scripture defines truth, not some church, even a historic church, even a large church with over a billion adherents called Roman Catholic Church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Communion made clear. Memorial celebration of Christ shed blood, broken body and shed blood made clear. Communion made clear. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. First point here, that was all introduction. First point, remembering the love of the saints. These points will come quick. Hold on. Remembering the love of the saints. First point, remembering the love of the saints. Verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say of you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So the first point out of 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34 is this, remembering the love of the saints. When you come together as a church, whether it's communion Sunday or not, whether it's Lord's Supper Sunday or not, it's the Lord's day and it's the Lord's church. And these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you come together to love the Lord first and to love the saints second. You don't come together to love yourself first. And, you know, if you can fit other people in and God in, that's great, right? No, you come to love God and neighbor. We die to self. We die to self. That's the call of Christ. And then we're set free of self-love to love God and love our neighbor. So remembering the love of the saints, they were getting it all wrong. They were coming together. Now, the Corinthian church, just so you know, was getting a lot of things wrong. It was a mess. If you haven't read the book of 1 Corinthians, go back and read it, and you'll find that they were a mess. They they had this thing called grace that uh, allowed them to, to celebrate a man having his father's wife as if that was God-glorifying and wonderful, isn't God gracious? Paul's like, uh, no, stop. That, no, that's filthy. That needs to be repented of. He needs to be put out of the church. If he'll not repent, stop. Uh, they had all sorts of wild things going on in the Corinthian church. And one of the things they did was to abuse the Lord's Supper, to abuse what we today call communion often. And so they came together in the context of a meal. And you'll find in the Bible, the Lord's Supper is in the context of a meal. You'll find when the Lord Jesus first delivered it, they were in the upper room having a meal. And it's in the Bible called a love feast. And so an actual meal, and we're going to have a meal today in which we will partake of the bread and the cup in the context of a love feast. The Bible calls it a love feast because we're to come together to love God and love each other. But they were loving themselves to the point that some folks 
got roast beef and some got none. <laughs> and that can't be. That can't be. Some were drunk even. It was real wine. Some were drunk even. They're drunk at church. That's not good. That's just not going to go well. We do not have real wine here today. Nobody will be drunk. No one's in danger. But you could get a sugar high if you really got after that, that Welch's. Um, it's pretty high in sugar content, even though it's natural. There'll be a great feast before us, and there'll be plenty for all of us. Those that go through first, I recommend you pull back a little bit, and you'll get another chance later. Just be happy you got to go first, right? But the issue is we're not there to be first. We're not there for us. We're there to love God and to love our neighbor. That's the issue. And they were, they were getting it all sorts are wrong. They came together as a church. There are divisions. There's factions. And they did not come to eat the Lord's Supper. They did not come for the Lord and to delight in remembering Christ's gospel and partaking of the bread and the cup to remember Christ's broken body and shed blood. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? What? He says, verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? I mean, are you that... Are you that hungry? Now, out of compassion for them, we live in a very, very, I mean, the first world nation of first world nations. And so us getting hungry is like a phenomenon. Wow, I think, I think I'm hungry. Is that, oh no, I ate too much. <laughs> You're not sure what that sensation is. It's so unfamiliar to us as Americans. Much of the world through the history of the world, and certainly the world this is written to in Corinth, yeah, they knew what hunger was. They knew what hunger was. It was hand-to-mouth kind of existence for the most part. And so, yeah, you can understand them coming and the church has gathered these resources and, and some folks might get excited. Oh, looky, I remember what hungry was. My wife remembers. My older kids remember, right? Where it was a big deal to go to McDonald's, a big deal. We went on Tuesday. You know why? Tuesday was, I think, 20-cent hamburger day and 25-cent cheeseburger day. That's the only day of the week we went to McDonald's because we were poor. That's how poor we were. I was a United States Marine, and it's tragic that you're that poor as a United States Marine, but we were. You know, we bought bread and peanut butter and ramen, and I made wonderful dishes like ramen with uh, relish. I thought, we need a vegetable. <laughs> I can still remember to this day that ramen with relish is not a recipe. It's a disaster. Disaster. Vegetable or not. <laughs> you learn lessons. Uh, we, we bought the cheapest bread, and when it was on sale, we brought more and, and froze it. Uh, we, we bought peanut butter and he ate it. And we never, by the grace of God, accepted a dollar from the government, which we could have, food stamps and all that. We, we'd know, no, that we're, we're making it. But we were hungry. And you know what? The Lord's Day, the Lord's Day, the saints would get together. And so often, there's this wonderful family, Paul and Carol Broach. They would open their, <laughs> their home up. And uh, they let me invite anyone and everyone. And I invited all these Marines, these scoundrels. I invited them all to church. And I said, if you come to church, after church, you can come to this home, which is kind of a big deal for Marines living in barracks and everything. And at the home, there'll be all this food. And there's a sand volleyball court. We'll play volleyball till 10 o'clock or midnight. And so all these Marines would come. They'd get the gospel. We'd eat. We'd have fun. It was terrific. But for us as a family, that was the high day of food for the week and fellowship. Praise God. And it was a treasure. So I can identify a little bit there as they gather together. I can also identify as years ago, I was in Dubai, and, and they met at night because it's hot in the day. They met late, late, late at night. And, and uh, on this one occasion, I went to Dubai twice. On one visit, a man had been put out of the church, church discipline, because he was unrepentant 
and involved in an adulterous relationship. So they put him out of the church. I was there when they put him out. Months later, I came back from Somalia. We stopped in Dubai. And it just happened in God's providence to be the, the Lord's Day that he had repented and reconciled with his wife. And they were welcoming him back to the church. And he was humble and broken. But the church was joyous. And they had like this 1 a.m. feast. And everyone disappeared to gather incredible Middle Eastern food and bring it back to me and the lucky Marines who were with me, uh, who had this feast on food we had never had before. But it was a glorious thing. It was a celebration of God's family together, celebrating Christ and His amazing grace. And so I, I, I know a bit of what they're talking about. Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing meat with amazing herbage on it and all the breads and everything. Just, just phenomenal feast. And so we, we come to love God, we come to love neighbor, not to come, we don't come to love self, we come to delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to celebrate it in the breaking of the bread and in the taking of the cup, to remember Christ's broken body and shed blood, to love the Lord by celebrating what he has done and giving him thanks and giving him all glory for that amazing grace. Verse 23, second point here, remembering the love of Christ, his gospel, and his sacrifice. So remembering the love of the saints, remembering the love of Christ, his gospel, and his sacrifice. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the... New covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Three main points in this point of remembering the love of Christ, his gospel and his sacrifice. Three main points. Twice over, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he closes this whole section in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what is it you're eating? Bread. What is it you're drinking? A cup, or what's in it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, it's not the body of Jesus, it's not the blood of Jesus, it's the bread and a cup. You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So what are you doing? As often as you eat bread, it's bread, and drink this cup, it's a cup of grape juice or wine, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You're proclaiming it. You're not repeating it. Again and again and again and again. The mass, as Rome calls it, is mass murder. It's the priest calling Jesus out of heaven to murder him again and to serve him up to be eaten. It's an abomination. The word of God says, in remembrance, in remembrance, eat the bread, drink the cup, and you're proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. The Lord's historic death. The one where he said it is finished. The one where he obtained eternal redemption, ascended and sat down. You're proclaiming what he did 2,000 years ago when you Partake of the bread and the cup. Notice he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We don't have time, but do some research on the new covenant, right? What is the new covenant? It's a work of the Holy Spirit of God regenerating the dead. It's God writing his word, his law on the heart, and it's sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And what Rome does in the mass is a blasphemy of the new covenant. Rome makes salvation dependent upon the priestcraft of the sacramental system of works righteousness that they have created. And the chief sacramental uh, work is the work of the mass, the Eucharist, the bread and 
the cup, literally the body and the blood of Christ in their heresy. And so we remember the love of Christ when we partake of the bread and the cup. We remember his gospel. We remember his sacrifice. And we proclaim his death till he comes. Third and final point from 1 Corinthians 11. Remembering to confess our sins to God and his forgiveness. So that first point, remembering the love of the saints. The second, remembering the love of Christ, his gospel, and his sacrifice. And the third, remembering to confess our sins to God and his forgiveness. He is faithful and just to forgive us. We must confess our sins. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak, sick, and many sleep. Weak, physical ailment, sick, actual disease or sickness, and sleep, meaning dead. So when they presume to claim to be right with God, they presume to claim to be saved by grace alone through faith alone, and thus they're partaking of the bread and the cup to celebrate Christ's death till he comes in remembrance of his tetelestai. When they wrongly claim that and they're trampling Christ, his gospel, and the bread and cup beneath their feet, the Lord is a faithful father. He will chasten his children. Some are weak, some are sick, some are dead. And so we're to examine ourselves and confess our sin And if we would judge ourselves, it says, we would not be judged. Verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. 1 John 1, verse 8, says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Praise God for his amazing grace. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. We are not on a merit-based system. Now, when we sin, we are breaking fellowship with God, but he is our father. When my children irritate me, they break fellowship with me, but I am their father. When we sin, we break fellowship with God, but He is our Father. He has sought us and bought us and brought us. No, He has bought us and sought us and brought us. Put it in the right order there. And He'll not let us go. He is the author and the finisher of our salvation. He'll not let us go. Oh, we should keep a short sin account, right? We should confess our sins daily. And He is faithful and just to forgive us. And by the grace of God, we should pray for the power to actually forsake sin, to put it off, to live as those who are born again, if indeed we are born again from above. But it's not a merit-based system. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Don't act like as born-again Christians, don't act like as Christians who believe the gospel of grace that it's a merit-based system. But don't be flippant with your heavenly Father either. You come to him as Jesus taught you, our Father who art in heaven. But in that prayer, you ask for forgiveness for your sins as you forgive others. And as you've been forgiven. So, these three points again, communion made clear. Remembering the love of the saints. We gather to love the saints, not ourselves. Secondly, remember the love of Christ, his gospel, his sacrifice. We gather to love Christ who first loved us. 
and laid down his life that his body might be broken, his blood shed to wash away all our sins. And third, remembering to confess our sins to God and remembering that you are forgiven. You are forgiven. When you partake of the bread and cup today, remember you're forgiven. It's not your merit. It's the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. It's his perfect merit, his perfect holiness, his perfect righteousness that is our confidence. I look forward to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity that your scripture provides. I pray, Lord, we would not lose it. We'd not look into the scripture, see it clearly, and then quickly forget. Grant clarity of conviction that grows into certain dogmatism that enables us to speak with love, with love to our perishing neighbors, a billion plus precious men and women perishing under the heresies of Rome, the chief heresy being the mass. We ask, Lord, that you grant a great revival in this day, that millions upon millions of our Roman Catholic friends would turn unto Jesus and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and celebrate the Lord's Supper as a memorial of his tetelestai, that he has obtained eternal redemption and then sat down. I pray that our celebration would be sweet today, Lord, sweet, glad, joyful, rich, and full for your glory and for the blessing of all your saints. In Jesus' holy name, amen.